One of the great responsibilities and joys of being on the deacon's board is the opportunity to teach occasionally and even preach sometimes. Maybe once a year, once every two years, we get the opportunity to aid the pastor by, by actually preaching. When I joined the deacon's board and I heard that, I had a, a bit of a knot in my stomach, but I thought, this is something that I really need to do. So in September, when the uh, deacons meeting happened, and Matt said that December 30th was the Sunday that he was not going to be preaching and would anyone volunteer, I kind of gritted my teeth and said, yeah, sure, pick me. I don't want to give you the impression that I'm doing it strictly because it's something I have to check off the box and there I've done it, I can forget about it. It's something that I really did want to do. But it is a little nerve-wracking. Um, I will say, though, that <clears throat> with a wife and a son and a daughter in the congregation, I'm probably the fourth least nervous person here. <laughs> They're all sitting there saying, please don't mess up, please don't mess up. So when I volunteered, Matt came up to me after, right after and said, would you like a one-hour preaching 101 lesson? And I said, great, I'd love it. So we met for an hour one evening, and he said, oh, so what would you like to preach on? Do you want me to give you a topic? Do you want me to give you a passage? Is there something that you want to preach on? And I said, well, no, I'd, I'd kind of like to follow up on what the last deacon preached on. The last time a deacon preached here was, was Ray Aldaba, and he preached on going the extra mile. It was a, a passage out of Matthew where um, Jesus tells us that when a man asks for your shirt, you give him your shirt and give him your coat as well. When you go that mile for someone, which is what you're supposed to do, go an extra mile and do it joyfully out of compassion. So I thought, I'd like to pick up on that and take that one another step further, talking about love. And I, and I um, cited Romans 12. So I said, I'd really like to preach on Romans 12. Maybe from verse 9 to 21, or from 14 to 21, somewhere along there. So Matt looked at me, and he smiled, <laughs> and I, I could just feel that what he really wanted to do was pat me on the top of the head and say, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn. In the 13 verses of Romans 12, from verse 9 through 21, there are 28 commands of Scripture, which I hadn't even counted, I didn't even check. He knew that off the top of his head. 28 commands of scripture will take to preach it properly, probably take about six hours. So he gave me two choices. He said you can either focus it down on one or two verses, or you can warn the congregation that they better bring food and a pillow, because they're going to be here for a long time. So I decided to do the former, which I'm sure you're glad of. As an aside, I also want to mention that one of the benefits of doing this is, I, I would highly recommend to all of you, take a passage of scripture, three, four, five verses, just some, something that you like, and really study it, meditate on it, go through all of the key words in it, look up all of the definitions and the synonyms of those key words, look at the author, whoever wrote it. Look at the context, the history, what was happening at that time. 
and really study it. And I think you'll find, even if you never preach it, or if you never discuss it, you will have really understood a passage of God's Word in a much deeper way, and that's always a good thing. So that's a really a side benefit of doing this. So we're going to look at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. We're going to read them, but we're going to focus on a couple of verses. So I'd like you to turn there now if you could. If, if you're using the Pew Bible ahead of you, it's page 948. Before we read it, though, I'd like you to just bow your head in prayer with me. We ask the Lord to open our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful, bright, sunny day, cold winter day. We can gather in a warm place and study your word. Our hearts are saddened because of the loss of our brother this week. But we know we know he is with you. He is in glory, Lord. We will see him again one day. We pray that um, you would help us to look at this very meaty section of Romans. Open our hearts to what you want to tell us. And we ask this in the name of your precious and holy Son, Jesus. Amen. So this passage written by the Apostle Paul, was written in 56, 57 A.D., something like that. And it was when Paul was in the city of Corinth. He was getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he just finished 10 years of church planting in the Roman Empire. He planted churches in Galatia, Macedonia, Ikea, Asia Minor. He considered that this particular aspect of his ministry was completed and he was really keen to get on to the next. And what he thought the next should be would be to go to Spain. He said he wanted to build something that, that he's, it's not being built upon any other man. He wanted to, to go in to the untapped area of Spain and start ministry. So he was leaving from Corinth. And he thought, I'm going to stop in to Rome on the way for a visit. So he wrote this letter to the Romans to partly to tell them about his coming visit. But the unique thing about Romans is all of Paul's other letters, his epistles to other churches, were written to address some kind of a problem. There was something going on in that church that needed, needed his oversight, needed his help. Romans is much more a story of Paul's theology. And it's, it's uh, as John Piper says, the greatest book ever written. It's pretty hard to argue with that. Chapter 12, in particular, starts a section from 12 to 15, to part, partway through 15, where Paul outlines how the gospel transforms our lives and the behaviors in our lives that come out of that transformation. So let's read it. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. 
Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. So now you can see where Matt was coming from. There's a lot of meat there. <laughs> that would be a very long sermon. There's, I've heard sermons on never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I've heard sermons on, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Heap burning coals on his head. That's a a great sermon topic as well. Very hard to understand sometimes. But we're going to focus on just three verses. The first verse, the first command we get from Paul is to let our love be genuine. Genuine love. So what does genuine love look like? The root, it's really interesting, the root for this word comes from Latin sinceris. Sinceris, from which we get our English word sincere. If you break it up, sinceris means without wax, which seems kind of odd. Back in ancient Roman times, when um, sellers would sell their jars, their porcelain jars and their or earthen jars, if there was a crack in it, it would be worthless. So they'd take a little bit of wax, and they'd rub wax into the crack and color it so that you couldn't see it. So astute buyers, if they were looking at a jar and they were about to buy it, it didn't take them long to catch on that, I need to put this near some kind of heat source. I'll put it out in the sun for a little while, or I'll put it beside a fire for a little while. We'll see just how good this jar really is. If the wax started to melt, they know that it was a, it was a crack. So the honest vendors would then develop um, a two-tier product sales. There's without wax or with wax, meaning it had some cracks in it. That's how we get the the term without wax, or how we get the term genuine, sincerest. It literally reflects reflects what the Greek says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Or as we said, let the love be genuine. As J.B. Phillips says, let us have no imitation Christian love. So this leads me to the first point, that sometimes genuine love is hard to do. Genuine love is something that we can all understand in our head, but sometimes it's very hard to do. So it seems to be a rather obvious command, let your love be genuine. But we have to be very careful, because Paul's not saying, let your love be genuine to those family members, 
or those very good friends or those people that love you back. He's saying, let your love be genuine to everyone. Genuine love with our family members is easy. I can relate quite easily to it, having over the last few years collected five little granddaughters. That's genuine love. The one thing that that will rival holding your baby in your arms is holding your grandbaby in your arms. That's a true, genuine love. And that's great. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying we have to have a genuine love for everyone. He isn't alone when he speaks to the church about love. Every New Testament writer talks about love. Uh, When Paul's addressing Timothy, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all else, above everything else, put on love. There are many more, but Paul reminds us us that his love must be genuine, not phony or hypocritical. But the fundamental importance of love is clearly spelled out by Jesus in Luke 10. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because, as, as you know, we're going through the book of Luke with Pastor Matt. And when we get to Luke 10, I'm sure we'll spend some time on this. But I, I, it's, it's just such a good illustration. Um, I wanted to, to briefly talk about it. If you remember in Luke 10, Jesus is asked by one of the law experts, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his answer was absolutely brilliant. He's talking to a legal expert. And he says, what does the law say? So the legal expert thought, I'm sure going through his head were the pages and pages and pages of the Mosaic law, the things that we need to do to win God's favor. But he said, he boiled it down to just two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. The second one, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus replied to him, okay, you got it. That's it. Just do that. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the the law expert thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's really, really hard to do. I think we should try to narrow this down a bit. So he said, who is my neighbor? To which Jesus replied with one of the most preached upon, most read, most written about stories in the Bible. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. So I won't go into the entire parable today, but it's an excellent illustration of what we are expected to do, how we are expected to show love, even to those who we may find it hard to love. Tim Keller points out in Generous Justice that the Jews absolutely hated, despised the Samaritans. They viewed the Samaritans as infidels. They viewed them as racial half-breeds. They called them religious heretics. They just couldn't stand them. You may have people in your life who you consider that way maybe not quite that strongly, 
but there may be people that you find it really hard to love. It may be someone who's always giving you a hard time about your faith, at the water cooler at work or at the Tim Hortons. Never misses a chance to take a dig at It may be your next-door neighbor, literally your neighbor. We talk about loving your neighbor. It might be your next-door neighbor who lets their dog bark all night. Or you do a very good job of keeping your place up, and they just let theirs go. They mow their lawn once in August and once in October, and that's it. And it drives you crazy because you, you take pride in your home. It may be somebody who claims to be a Christian, but believes really weird things as far as you're concerned. Doesn't really understand the Bible as far as you I had a Samaritan in, in my life once. Um, one, of, one of our neighbors in our, our previous home just drove me crazy. I really struggled. I remember one time we went to a Christmas party with the neighbors, and they were all gathered around, and people were milling. And he'd come up to me and shook my hand, and I, I expected he would say, Merry Christmas, and he said, Lynn, have you ever put on weight? So I said, okay. And then, and then the next words out of his mouth was, you know, Lynn, he had seen a uh, conservative sign on my lawn. He said, you know, Lynn, you can't be a right-winger and be a Christian. So I said, okay. I started to say, I think that's a little bit generalizing, but oh, okay. But he said, no. Right-wingers, they only care about the bottom line. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. And he, he, he literally didn't let me get a breath in for 20 minutes. So finally, I just kind of had to back away from him and, and, uh, and not pursue it anymore. And then I read this passage, and I think, I'm supposed to love him. This is really hard. But as you recall... That Samaritan went to the Jewish man who was lying on the side of the road and he cared for him. He bandaged him. He picked him up and put him on his donkey or horse or camel or whatever it was and carried him to an inn, put him in a soft bed and then told the innkeeper and said, here's a bunch of money to pay for the next few nights but I want you to spare no expense Look after this man. And if it costs more than what I've already given you, I'm coming back through again and I'll, I'll settle it up. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but we can assume that he probably didn't get repaid and he probably maybe didn't even get thanked. This is the radical answer that Jesus gave when the law expert said, well, who's my neighbor? It's not what... Uh, law expert wanted to hear. Now, I don't want to gloss over this by saying that you just have to go and do something really hard and that's genuine love. We're commanded to do that and I hope as we, as this church starts to build a compassion ministry, I hope that sometimes, even though we don't feel like doing something, we will want to do it anyway. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about genuine love. Actually loving Now you may be thinking, it sounds great, I get it in my head, but I can't just manufacture love for somebody. People spend years waiting to fall in love with someone. Love is a very deep and a very powerful emotion. 
As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and we hear at a lot of weddings, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. So love is intentional. Love takes action. But how can we love someone who we don't have anything in common with or, in fact, we may have differences with? So let's keep going and see. I think it gives us some helpful hints. The next part of verse 9 says, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now this is something we can actively do. The word abhor is a very strong language. If you look up abhor in the dictionary, it says to regard with disgust or hatred. The synonyms are detest, loathe, abominate, despise. Very strong words for what Paul is calling us to do with evil. You've probably often heard the expression, hate only evil. What that gets at is, hate the evil, but don't hate the person who is doing what you consider to be evil. One big danger is when we hate evil, it bleeds through to the person. And we dislike them. We dislike them very strongly. That's the opposite of what Paul is telling us to do here. So my second point is, we are to hate everything that is not of God and cling to everything that is. Various definitions of evil. Profound immorality. Conscious and deliberate wrongdoing. Discrimination designed to harm others. Humiliation of people designed to cause them pain or suffering or destructiveness. But there's one definition that I really love. The best one that I found is it's any action, thought, or attitude that is contrary to the character of God. So Jesus tells us we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And our neighbor is virtually anyone, regardless of what we actually think of. Paul is calling us to ensure that this love is genuine. And in order to do that, we are to hate everything that's not of the character of Jesus. Paul then repeats it in another way by telling us to hold fast or cling or hang on with dear life, whatever your, your uh, uh, version is, to everything that which is good or that which is the character of God, or the character of Jesus. Again, this tells us to be active. We understand that we need to hate evil, we need to abhor evil and flee it. But in its place, we hold on to what's good. So what's good? Well, we know that love is good. No one's going to argue that love is good. And we know that love is patience and kindness, rejoicing with what's right, rejoicing with the truth. They're all good. Before we look at the next verse, though, it's a good point to stop and realize that what Paul is telling us to do is not just hard. I've said it's very hard, and and yes, it is very hard. Really, it's impossible to do by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. There's a a very often heard um, part of Romans, Romans 7, where Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. We may have the best intentions of the world, but we're not capable. So I don't want you to get discouraged. I want you to call on God's Holy Spirit to help you. We don't have to do it alone. This is the glorious gospel, that we don't have to depend on our own abilities to love genuinely, cling to everything good every day, keeping insulated from everything that's not good. God made a way for us to do that through His Son, Jesus. To stand before Him in righteousness, not because of anything that we've done ourselves, but because of His shed blood on the cross and His resurrection. If you've never really done that, that decision today, or maybe you even struggle believing in God. I, I, Lynn and I were sitting at home last night, we turned on the 6 o'clock news, and it was just heartbreaking the things that were happening yesterday in the world. If you struggle with that, then people here want to talk to you. So please come and see me after. The other deacons will talk to you. But it will be the best decision you can make is to accept the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ as your Savior. Back to verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So, Romans, as we said, was written primarily to the church. But what does he mean by brotherly affection? John Piper says that it's the affection that comes from deep bonds and long-standing familiarity. It's the affection that most people feel for their family. I think we can all relate to this. It doesn't mean that there's never squabbles or arguments. I have kids... I know that they fight, and I know that they love each other. You can, you can do both. You may be thinking that, you know, there's people at Calvary Baptist Church here that I, I don't know if I can ever feel that kind of brotherly affection for. John Piper says, I quote, In my church, there are just too many weirdos and goofballs and emotional misfits. Now, that doesn't apply here, but let's... For hypothetical purposes, let's assume that it did. What do we do? Do we just back off from those people, just stay away and and try to keep ourselves from feeling comfortable? That's not what Jesus calls us to do. In fact, Jesus never said that life would be comfortable. In fact, he promised the exact opposite. Life is going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to stand and say things to people that are hard, but they're supposed to be coming out of love, not out of that need to be right all the time. It should come from love. There's a saying, silence is golden, but sometimes it's just yellow. I uh, must admit that I witnessed this in this church. I'm proud to say that I see that in business meetings. We have passion, differences of opinion in business meetings, but they're done with a motive of love, that we want to do what's best to serve the Lord. Whether it's talking about the building, the parking lot, or the the rules, the the membership rules, all of these things that that stir up emotions. But we we do it well and we do it right. We also know that the commands of God are not supposed to be doable in our own strength. As I said before, 
And in Matthew 19, 16, 1926, he says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What about showing honor? Outdo one another in showing honor. This is easier. Paul sounds like he's making it into a competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. You can show honor to some people without feeling affectionate. Paul's not telling us, he's not giving us that choice. He wants us to do both. I think that the key to loving someone with brotherly affection is by honoring them. And I would put it, honoring each other comes out of cultivating humility. The definition of honoring someone, give them special attention or respect and treat them greater than they likely deserve. To outdo each other in honoring means we have to cultivate that desire to honor others rather than be honored ourselves. And that's the key. That's why I say cultivating humility. If you esteem others over yourself, you're being humble. You're practicing humility. This too has to be intentional. It's not in our nature. It's not in our nature to put others first. Let's face it. There's a, um, a book that comes from the library called Thinking, Loving, and Doing. And there's a, an article written by Francis Chan. And he talks about going to interview Johnny Erickson Tata. She'd been quadriplegic for 40 years. Most of you know her. And during the meeting, she had to stop the meeting because she was in so much pain. So Francis Chan found out that She'd actually developed pneumonia, which came from the chemotherapy, which came from her cancer to a quadriplegic. So they had to stop the meeting. He felt really bad for her. And then he got a note from her saying, Francis, I love you as a brother. You stay strong in the faith. I believe in what you're doing. She was encouraging him. Francis Chan said, how can she be thinking about anyone else? When I have the flu, I'm only thinking of me. Love produces this kind of constant thinking about others, which is essentially what humility is. Honoring others is sometimes hard. The, I have a very personal example and a very difficult one. Last week, I had George Duhaney pray for me. What I didn't know was it was the last time I was going to see him this side of glory. George is a, was a real prayer warrior. He loved to pray. When we went to visit him in the hospital, Tim Ray and I, he lit up and we said, let's pray together, brother. I went back to see him a couple of nights later. And I wanted to pray with him was struggling to even speak. He'd say a couple of words and have to take a deep breath. And when I said, let's pray, he lit up and he sat up in bed and said, let's pray. I prayed for him for a while. I thought that he was probably too weak to pray himself, but he wasn't. He sat up and he prayed strongly and boldly for me. He was praying for me, for me and my family. That's honoring. That was really honoring. That's the definition of honoring. 
Sometimes it's hard to honor others if you see that they have something going on in their life that you don't agree with. But if you can cultivate humility, you can sow a small seed of affection and it will eventually grow. I'm going to leave that there for now because I want to come back to it at the final point. But when we're honoring others, as we heard in James when we went through the book of James with Pastor Matt, we have to be careful that we don't, again, honor only those who we can get something back from or those who we really, really like, they're really fun to be with. It doesn't say to honor only those people. In James 2, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention or show honor to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. This is a lot easier to preach than it is to actually do. How can we have affection, brotherly affection, and how can we show honor to those that we may not even really like? Are those that you think are doing dishonorable things. Well, the Bible says the first thing you can do is to be that kind of person who others want to honor. Even though that's not your goal. You're not doing it so that people will honor me. Be the kind of person that others do want to be around. Be caring. Be open. Be approachable. Be willing to listen. I'll be the first one to admit I struggle here. I find it hard to stop and listen to somebody else who wants to tell me a long story about something that's going on in their life. Even though that's exactly what they need at that moment. To be even more honest, normally the reason that I don't want to do it is because I want to hurry and do something for myself. There might be a uh, football game I want to go watch. I don't want to miss the kickoff. I can't stop and listen to your story. This kind of selfishness needs, needs repentance and needs God to to change. Secondly, preach to yourself daily that everyone, no matter how disagreeable or how imperfect they are, is made in God's image. If they're born again, they know Christ, remember that those things that drive you crazy, those things that you find disagreeable, they've already been forgiven by, by the creator of the universe. If they don't yet know him, they're still created by God in his image. They have intrinsic value. They deserve your love and your respect. There's an author named Nicholas Wolterstorff, who Tim Keller quotes in this book, who says, Imagine if a visitor came to the United States and he knew absolutely nothing about United States history. And you take him, drive him to Mount Vernon, Virginia, and show him this house. And you go and say, Isn't this marvelous? The visitor would likely say, we passed by some beautiful homes on the way here that were much nicer. The architecture was much greater. Why are we at this place? And then he finds out that this is the home of George Washington. This is where George Washington was living when he was helping to found the United States of America. All of a sudden, 
that place now has value. You've, you've been yourself in places that are very historical, and you think, I'm sitting in the same seat that X sat in. It gives you, it makes you feel that there's value there. What Tim Keller says, the internal merits and quality of the house are irrelevant. Because we treasure the owner, we honor his house. Because it was precious to him, and we revere him, then it becomes precious to us. So we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and their creator. Because it's a different way to look at people. As Piper says again, glorify Christ's finished work by the way that you apply that work to them. With their bad attitudes and their annoying habits, then let your affection grow. Thirdly, even with their flaws, every believer has evidence of grace in their lives. Every believer will have had someone come up to them at some point and say, you know what? There's a change in your life. I've seen something different. You don't, you, you don't have that same quick temper or you don't focus on yourself all the time anymore. You, you care about me. You're asking me about me. When you see that in someone's life, tell them. There's nothing more encouraging. Once again, that's why we encourage everyone in our church family to be part of a small group. You really get to develop a brotherly affection for people when you get to know them. And you can't get to know them if you don't take the time to spend time with them. Listen to them. Even with all their flaws. The fourth point here on, on, this, on this point is that remember that you were completely alienated from God and without hope. You were not worthy of brotherly affection or honor. But through Christ, God granted you both. Paul said in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Never forget your undeserving position. It's a seed of affection that will grow into genuine love. So I want to go from this to my final point. I want to come back to the word humility, which we talked about a minute ago. The word for humility in the Greek text is tapenof rusone, which is six syllables. Words should not be six syllables. It's translated in the King James as lowliness. The definition of this word is great. It is an inside-out virtue, sorry, it is an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord instead of to others. So let's go back to our passage and, and, and jump to verse 16. It says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So this leads me to my final point. The lowly are all around us. Now when Paul says associate with the lowly, I always thought this is the perfect verse to build a compassion ministry on. What he must be saying is, associate with those who are homeless, those who are down and out, those who are struggling, less fortunate. And he probably is telling us that. But as well, with our definition of lowliness, he's giving us a better understanding of who the lowly are. That is anyone whose character is less than that of God. We are all lowly. 
including you. I find this helpful to remember when I look upon others. When I walk around the Byward Market at lunchtime and I see homeless people sitting at the Rideau Center entrance with a sign that says, a little change would help. My mind instantly goes to, why don't you get a job? I got a job. Or, why don't you just stop drinking? Why, do you stop, why don't you stop gambling? If I give you that money, you're probably going to just buy drugs. These are not seeing others the way Paul wants us to. This is not practicing humility. Compared to God, I'm exactly the same as them. I just have a different sin. We all have different sins. So I'm not supposed to have that inherent superiority that you automatically flip into when you look upon others in that way. But with the definition that we have, the lowly could be that beautiful family with the four-bedroom house in the suburbs with two cars and perfect kids and everybody's got their own iPhone. As we learned in our Sunday school class last, last spring, the poor are actually those who have a broken relationship with either God or themselves, their community or their creation. What they need is reconciliation. As we also learn in that course from the book When Helping Hurts, we don't just throw money at them either. As a matter of fact, if we do, it could probably hurt the situation. What they need to do is have a reconcile, a reconciliation. What they really need is the gospel. But we can't tell them the gospel if we don't know them. We can't tell them the gospel if they don't trust us. We certainly can't tell them the gospel if we look down on them. So in closing, I want to challenge you this morning. We know that Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor if we want eternal life. We know that our neighbor is anyone in need. Regardless of their religious affiliations, their political views, their ethnicity, we know that Paul called us to love with a genuine love, to hate what is not of the character of God but never hate the people who display them. He calls us to regard each other with an affection that we normally reserve for our family. He calls us to honor each other to the point where we're competing to see who can honor the person the best, who can honor honor the most. And we're to associate with the lowly, which according to our translation means everyone, regardless of who they are, how and why they got to where they are. So my challenge for you this week, consider it a personal growth plan or consider it a New Year's resolution, whatever you want. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you walk around the shopping mall, when you look at people, try to see them as being made in the image of God. Try to see them as worthy of your time, worthy of an effort to maybe get to know them. Maybe, just maybe, if you don't already, you may learn to love them with a brotherly affection. A love that only comes from Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for Paul's writings. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you went to the cross for us. Lord, we just pray that 
You would give us new eyes. Help us as we look upon each other to do it with that genuine love, with that brotherly affection. Help us to not look down, to look up.